Amen, if you will. Uh, Open your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. We'll begin our reading in verse 1 in just a moment. Again, the book of Acts uh, chapter 20, and we'll begin in verse 1. A number of uh, providential things, uh, that is, uh, things that are under God's authority, namely all things are under God's authority, but a number of those things have come together uh, this weekend. Now, I want to say a word to you young people. Uh, now, I, obviously, you did your preparing for worship Thursday. Uh, you listened to packing for worship on Friday. So you're prepared to hear from this text today. But in this text, there's a story of a young man named Eutychus. And over the course of a sermon from a, the Apostle Paul, he fell asleep He fell out of a window, and he died. So just use that as a word of admonition uh, to those of you that uh, stayed up more than just a little late. That's a lie to us, in case you missed it. More than just a little late uh, over this weekend. Well, as we come to the text here today, as I begin each week starting to dig into the text and trying to understand what's going on and then figure out the best way uh, to present uh, what God has revealed to us uh, in His Word, uh, to preach it to you for uh, your understanding, your edification. One of the principles that I preach by is that which was articulated by Charles Spurgeon, uh, the very influential uh, preacher uh, in 19th century London. And when asked about his theory, his philosophy of preaching, he said, I take every text and I make a beeline to the cross. That is that he understood, as we should understand, every word in the Bible, beginning in the book of Genesis and concluding in the book of Revelation, either points to the Lord Jesus Christ or looks back upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is all about Jesus. And sometimes it's uh, abundantly clear as I think back on that text that I first preached at Centercrest so many years ago, where Paul stated, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Or he was like right later in that same book, I delivered unto you that which was first importance, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised according to the Scripture. Those are easy. Sometimes Brad Aldridge will come up to me after one of those uh, kind of tee it up sermons, and he said, yeah, that, that, was, that one was kind of set up for you, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, that was, that was a good one. But sometimes you come to places in Scripture in that how is it, how are we to understand how the instruction to not sow two kinds of seed in your vineyard is pointing to Christ, or not plowing with an ox and a donkey yoked together points to Christ, or not wearing clothing with wool or linen mixed together. How do those point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ? And let me assure you, they do. And so while Jesus and his gospel really isn't specifically mentioned in these 16 verses that we have here today, Jesus 
stands beneath. He stands in this text. He permeates that which was done by this great apostle and his colleagues. Uh, they did what they did in order to place the gospel on display for the people 2,000 years ago and to keep the gospel of the resurrected Christ on display until the day of his return. So read with me. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sophiter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, they went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, pay attention young people, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, and as Paul talked longer, after being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and had eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take uh, Paul aboard there, for he had arranged intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite to Chios, and the next day we came to Samos, and the, that, and the day after to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your gospel, for its truth, for its power. God, I pray that we would indeed hear your gospel, that we would see you as high as lifted up, as, as glorious as the treasure without price. Again, may you be glorified. May your truth be communicated. May we, your people, be changed all for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll remember from last week, Paul states for us, or Luke records for us, a description of that which the Apostle Paul desires to accomplish as he wraps up this third missionary uh, journey 
Uh, he is uh, wanting ultimately to wind up in the east at Jerusalem, but he is going to go west to make a, a trip back through Macedonia and Greece for the sake of uh, speaking, uh, to encourage, to instruct these churches, these disciples that he had been associated with, and then eventually uh, make his way uh, to Jerusalem uh, to uh, give to them uh, an offering, uh, to provide for them in their time of suffering and make a statement of, of the unity uh, of the church of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, we, he, he desired eventually uh, to make it to Rome. Uh, what he didn't know is indeed he would make it to Rome, but not in the manner that he anticipated as he would make it uh, as a prisoner, uh, not of Caesar and not of the Jews, but as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there he would continue his gospel ministry while incarcerated uh, in Rome. And so we, we see here this morning, and once again, I'll kind of point out there's three key words. If it'll help you kind of retain some of the information, the three words are the departure, the details, and the description, okay? Uh, just kind of you can make a note of those and write them on the palm of your hand or whatever uh, you happen to do. Uh, but those may help you in kind of framing uh, the, the text uh, for today. So first of all, we see the departure uh, from Macedonia. And Luke notes for us that the uproar had ceased. And there's a sense where we see Christ right there because there was an uproar because of Jesus. There was an uproar because of the way. And the uproar was stilled, at least for the moment, by the power of God himself. Again, it is in, indeed uh, that uh, reminder that God is always with us in the season of affliction. He is the one who indeed never leaves or forsakes. Now, to be sure... He does not always promise to us to deliver us out of the storm, but he promises to be with us and that we will be delivered through that particular storm. And so uh, there, there was a time that the, this uproar had been quelled and, and through the various instrumentation of, of certain people that we saw uh, last week. And so at that time, and we don't know how much time had elapsed, but in this, at least on this occasion, Paul is, doesn't seem to be forced to leave. He chooses to leave. He, he strategically leaves uh, to continue more ministry. And that uh, ministry uh, begins with his calling those disciples uh, there from the areas around Ephesus and within Ephesus. And what does he do? He encourages them. Here's the thing, and I've told you this, and we're going to come back to this in, in, a, in a bit later in the sermon, but just kind of as a bit of an introduction. I've told you many, many times that the one thing that I wanted uh, to have in my ministry, to be remembered for, to, to, uh, to be able to accomplish, was to be an encourager. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our young men who shall go nameless, Keith Mullins, uh, told me twice this weekend, how much I've encouraged him over the years, how he typically goes home and wants to cry for an hour after I've encouraged him. And, and so, um, uh, but, I, but I really do. And here's the thing, I, I know I've said this many times, but I can go around this room, okay? And I know this one thing about you. 
you need to be encouraged. And, and there's a real desire in my heart to say, now, now, it's, it's going to be better. You're going to be healed. Your loved ones are going to be healed. Your finances are going to improve. That relationship is going to begin to work itself out. But the gospel really doesn't promise that. Our encouragement is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're always pointed to. He is the source of our encouragement. You all, you'll hear me saying we'll come back to this in future weeks. When sin entered our realm, and I'm sure Eric got into this over this weekend, when sin entered our realm, there, there are three categories that were deeply affected. One is, is the reality of our physical bodies in that we die, that mortality entered the realm as a principle. And so we're all, no matter how young you are, getting older, okay? And as I've said many times, I feel it every day. And then... In, in sin's interest, it had a way and still has a way of making relationships incredibly difficult. Even the best of re relationships sometimes are afflicted by disagreements. And so uh, the, the, the fall has affected our re relationships, whatever they may be, whether friends or family or business associates, that has been affected. And then you hear me off, often talk about finances or our livelihoods. I say over and over again, it's very difficult to make a living. Uh, nobody dumps that proverbial dump truck of cash in your yard every Friday morning for you to spend. It is difficult. And so in all of those areas, there, there is great, great difficulty. Uh, I'm kind of towards the end of the age spectrum, and it's discouraging to get old. But I look at these young families, and they're just tired. They're just tired. Uh, they, they have been chasing kids all week. And they're just tired. And they need to be encouraged that, that this is meaningful. I, I told one of our young ladies this, this weekend, remember this. Apart from Christ, nothing has any meaning. In Christ, everything has meaning. Whether it is wiping a snotty nose or wiping a dirty behind, it all has meaning and can be done for the glory of God. And folks, if you'll listen to me, hear me, that's an encouragement, that it has meaning, that it has purpose, that there is a glory in it, and God is honored as we do those things. And so, Paul encouraged them with the truth. The Greek is perikaleo. He called them alongside. He called them alongside and said, let me talk to you. Give me a few minutes and let me share some things with you that are true, that will stick with you in the challenges of life. And so while the hostilities were stilled, the Apostle Paul sent for the disciples, he encouraged them. And again, to be sure, his encouragement to them wasn't that, well, I'm going to, I'm going to leave and everybody's going to like you and everybody's going to get along and there won't be any more of these things like just happened, this uproar. No, he encouraged them with the truth of the gospel the power of God unto salvation. And so having encouraged them with the, the, the reality that the gospel is true, that it is powerful, that God is faithful, that he will never leave nor forsake, he departs to go uh, to Macedonia. 
again, to continue that ministry of encouragement there. And we see something of the, of the details of what he has planned there in verses uh, 2 uh, through 6. And, and he encouraged the, the disciples there when he came to Macedonia and to Greece, encouraging them with the truth. You find, I, I, I'm not going to go there just for our time today, but you'll see a bit of an example of how he encouraged his churches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 2 through 10 as he reflects. And he, and he, he again, he, he speaks to them this word of encouragement about we're hearing about what God is doing among you. And I am encouraged by that. And so he eventually arrives in Greece. He's, we're told that he stays there for three months and most likely, he wrote the book of Galatians and the book of Romans during uh, this time frame there. And so uh, as that time winds down, probably waiting out uh, the, the winter, he is preparing uh, to get ready to continue uh, this journey uh, to Jerusalem. And again, he is aware of a problem. He is aware of affliction, of persecution coming against him. In fact, he becomes aware of a plot to kill him. Many commentators think that he was probably going to get on a, a ship that had kind of been specifically chartered to take Jews back to Jerusalem for Passover. And so their plot was probably something like, we'll get Paul on this crowded ship. And one morning we'll all get up and he just won't be on board. That is, we'll pitch him overboard and we will be, get rid of this apostle Paul. Now, the thing is, and we see this, Paul was so aware that God was sovereign over the providences of his life, and he would have been fine with being tossed overboard for me to live as Christ to the die's game. But he also had the, the ability to look at the situation and say, okay, I'm going to have to tweak my plans. I'm, I'm going to have to adjust what I had planned on. I'm going to make a wise decision in view of the information uh, that I have. And so he prepares for that, and then we're told about these men that are going to accompany uh, Paul. Uh, they have been a part of uh, collecting the offering to take uh, to uh, Jerusalem. And I, I want to call attention to two of the names uh, in that list. Again, there in verse 4. I'm not going to get through all of them, just, just two, because I think this is really important for us. One name is Aristarchus. We have an English word that is uh, kind of drawn from this name. The word is aristocrat. And so this probably is a testimony to his status in society, that he was an aristocrat that was a part of the church. But the name mentioned after his name is Secundus, or Secundus, which is probably a slave's name because in the ancient world, at least according to James Boyce, that many times the chief slave was known as Primus and the second slave was known as Secundus or Secundus. And so this reflects the broad expanse of the socioeconomic groups that the gospel had impacted. And you always hear me say that we as a church, we must reflect 
all types of diversity. And I don't mean it in the crazy political sense of our day. But we, we need men and women and old and young and wealthy and not wealthy. And all, all through that, and you see in that early church, the church spanned even the socioeconomic realities of life. But I want you to note in this a very important principle. Paul poured his life into others for the sake of the gospel. And let me tell you this, when you build relationships, there's always a risk. Remember what I've said about relationships. In every relationship, somebody's left with a broken heart eventually. That is, when you're in a relationship, somebody's going to die first, and somebody's going to walk away from that grave with a broken heart. There is always a risk. In fact, there's kind of a certainty about relationships. But we see the example of our Lord Jesus Christ investing in others, pouring his life into people for the sake of the gospel. Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, what you've heard from me, you entrust to reliable men so that they will be able to teach others. And I'm thankful for the men and women of this church who are willing to invest their lives into others. Let me, let me do this, because and there's a point. If you're one of the couples or individuals that devoted your weekend and spent the sleepless nights investing in, pouring your life into our young people, would you stand for just a second? Eric, you as well. If you are a part of our Disciple Now weekend, just stand. Church, look around. These people, let me tell you something. If you're a parent and you're working, weekends get to be really important. And they gave up a weekend and much more. I mean, this wasn't just a one-weekend shot. These people are pouring their lives into your young people. Thank you. Now, obviously, none of you read your emails or texts, get your memos. But I announced previously that this was Seer Sucker Sunday. Several people have noted that I'm really looking sharp today. I mean, I always look sharp. But in a, in a near providence and a far providence, I had noted on Easter, my colleague and good friend Josiah Duncan and his little brother Seth and Hazel were all in seersuckers. And I said, all right, buddy, we're going to have seersucker Sunday. But there's a broader reason that I own a pair of seersuckers. They are a reminder to, of, to me of a gentleman that long ago poured his life into me, my family, my church, and several of his business associates that are some of my best friends. His name was Henry S. Watson. He was president of Farmers and Merchants Bank in Somerville, Georgia. And I can still see him sitting on about the third row or fourth row in the center aisle of First Baptist Church in Somerville in his seersucker suit, just preening like a peacock sitting there. And he came to Somerville, Georgia while I was at UNA, late 70s, to a very troubled bank. And this is his wife's words, or his widow's words, Henry was the hatchet man. He would come into these banks, and he would straighten their mess out. 
I've said many, many times to those that knew Henry, if he had been charged with the banking industry, 2008 wouldn't have happened, and three banks wouldn't have failed in the last 60 days in the United States of America if he had been running them. But he poured his life into his young associates, and they all went on to incredible banking careers. I was privileged to spend Thursday with two of those men, that one of them is retired as a president of a bank and one of them is currently president of the bank because Henry poured his professional life into them and he trained them. And I've, I've said to him many times over these 30 years, I know Henry would be proud of you and what you've done and what you've stood for. In other words, he, he entrusted his great banking wisdom in these men and they utilized it for their good and for the good of others. Be, beyond that, he poured his life into First Baptist Church of Somerville, Georgia, and to others. I came there as, at a very troubled time in my life in the early 90s, and he very, I, I had known him since uh, the early 80s, but we became very, very close friends. And he became a great encourager in a, in a, in a troubled season in that church. He poured his life into everybody in that church, and I, it, it kind of hit me hard. You see, my son, Zach, was about Josiah's age when Henry passed away. And Zach would often go to the bank with me in the mornings. And like my grandchildren now, he would run off and leave me behind and burst through the glass doors and make a beeline to that corner office, to Henry's office. I can still see Doris Allen, his secretary, sitting there. Because he would blow right by her. It didn't matter if it was a lawyer or a business person or who it was. He blew into Henry's office and was welcome. Because Henry loved him. And he loved all of my children. And he made a, a mark on them. But beyond that, he made a mark on me. And every time I say, and I've said it many times, that I desire being an encourager, that goes back to Henry Watson, and that goes back to the seersucker pants, worn in memory of this fine gentleman. And you've heard me mention two, two principles over uh, the years. One, he told me one time, let me tell you something, I teach my employees if you can devalue or dismiss one customer, you can devalue and dismiss them all. And so I want you to understand, as a member of North Carolina Clay Baptist Church, you're valuable. You have a, a role to play. You are important. And, and, and I've learned over the years, and I've had some people give me a hard time in my time in ministry. But let me tell you something. You can't just disregard them, and you can't just dismiss them. You value them. Because, again, certainly if they're believers, they are children of God. And I thought that was a tremendously important principle, that you value everybody that God places in your care. Second principle, that for every criticism, you have to have three attaboys. Every time you criticize somebody, you got to give them three attaboys. And boy, that, that, that has stuck with me. Let me just 
in a silly way illustrate that. You, several years ago, Zach and I were playing golf out at Ballantrae for my birthday. And I hit a drive, pretty good drive. And there was some knothead that was kind of the marshal, you know, telling everybody speed up, get finished, we want more people playing, blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you ain't got anything better to do than be a marshal on a public golf course, you need to find something else to do with your life, okay? But we drive up, and I've hit a good drive, and he goes, ha, hey, John Daly, you're trying to drive the green? Now, I had been working real hard to work out a swing flaw. And I thought, well, I think maybe I'm getting the hang of this, and I'm going to improve, and I'm not going to be as frustrated and angry. And probably what I should have said, well, who are you? I mean, I, could, I wouldn't recognize that guy now if he walked up to me. But it ruined my round. We had three and a half holes left, and I just scraped it around the rest of the way in because it got in my head. I thought I was doing better. But that criticism just stuck with me, and it got in my brain, and it simply messed me up. Now, again, I should have considered the source and just disregarded it. But I'm telling you, criticism many times is devastatingly powerful. And I'm not saying that we don't need to be criticized. Now, I'm going to be waiting for my three attaboys, but I was rebuked this weekend. Now, I got a text from another person that shall go nameless, Kristen Mullins. Now, in all caps, Timothy Brent Evans. He's a great guy. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, what in the world? I mean, it didn't prompt anything. So I find out. You left the most awful, stinking mess in the sink in the kitchen. What are you thinking? I tried to think of somebody else to blame. And I, so, again, I was just trying to be biblical. After I slaved over a hot smoker all day to cook for you, I put my hand to the plow and I didn't look back. I didn't even, I mean, a lot of times I'll wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and go, oh, I forgot. And it, even the text did not bring anything to my memory. And so they, they reviewed me you know, severely, many lashes, those lashes will be scars of grace over the course of my, my life, I, I assure you. And I'll be waiting for my attaboys. My encouragement to those ladies, though, you know what they did? They cleaned up my mess. They cleaned up my mess. Why? For the glory of God? For the advance of the gospel? I mean, that was a, it encouraged me. And, and listen, I've had people get furiously mad with me for a whole lot less than dirty dishwater. So thank you, ladies. And so, but I am waiting for my attaboys. But again, how we must invest in one another for the sake of the gospel. And even in Paul's life, you, you understand the risk. There were guys, guys that departed, that quit. And he was deeply grieved by that. But we continue... We don't let that discourage us from investing in others. So when you think about Seersucker Sunday, remember that we are to be what? We're to be encouragers in the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's move, let's move forward. So these men, they accompanied uh, Paul. We see the, the details of how he's, uh, his plans to travel and join up with them later. And they eventually meet, a, meet up in Troas where they, they're going to remain uh, for seven days. And what we see here is uh, the description of one Lord's day. We're told that on the first day of the week, do you realize that really, certainly in the book of Acts, it is the first notation, the first uh, statement of the church gathering on the first day of the week? Very interesting. Yeah, just right, right there. They gathered on the first day of the week. And how many of you have ever had questions, either one, one of two, sometimes they're interrelated, uh, why don't we worship on Saturday? Why don't we honor the Sabbath? Or why, if we're going to worship on Sunday, do we not observe Sabbath laws? And I think they're really good questions that you need to think seriously about and, and answer. And I just this is kind of John MacArthur's thinking. I kind of barred this, but I think it's true. This is why we worship on Sunday, and it, it's an important principle. And that Because you could say, and we're going to be talking a lot about pre-law, issues when it comes to family and sexuality and all of that in, in uh, our, our family series in coming, uh, coming weeks. So we're told in creation God rested on the seventh day. So if that predates the law, why are we not still resting, observing a day of Sabbath? But yet there's really no other mention of the Sabbath prior to the establishment of the law. And old, the Old Testament doesn't call the Gentile nations to observe the Sabbath, nor do you see a condemnation of a many condemnations of the Gentile nations for Sabbath violations. There are no New Testament texts that commands us to worship on the Sabbath. The Jerusalem Council did not impose Sabbath regulations along with the other admonishments uh, that flowed out of that meeting. When, when Paul speaks to the Galatians about their, their legalism, uh, he doesn't call them to Sabbath uh, observance. And in Colossians, he, he in fact rebukes them for their misunderstanding of, of special days and Sabbaths and so forth. In fact, his argument is all of that was the shadow. And now we have the reality the Lord Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And so, Sabbath seems to be, for Paul, a bit of a matter of conscience. If you come out of a Jewish background and you can properly engage in that, then he doesn't seem to have much of a, a problem to it. But we do not see in the New Testament Sabbath uh, observance, nor do we see in the post-apostolic church uh, the records of Sabbath gatherings. And so uh, I'm not a Sabbatarian. You may be a Sabbatarian if you would like. By that I mean you may try to observe strictly the, the laws of the Sabbath, uh, but I, I think those are things that belong to the old covenant, and we live in the fulfillment of Christ, our Sabbath rest. And so when we get just our gathering and recognition of Sundays is a celebration of Christ, our Sabbath. And so in the course of that gathering, imagine that, and he prolonged his speech. This is the first instance, and probably the last instance, of a long-winded preacher. I, I wouldn't know of any uh, in, in current uh, uh, churches or anything like that. But he, he went long because what? They were hungry for the Word of God. He wasn't talking about uh, football or baseball or politics. He was talking about the Lord 
Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, and there's a lot of speculation as to why this young man fell asleep, maybe lack of oxygen, just the lateness of the day, whatever it was, this young man, Eutychus, fell asleep. He fell out of the window, and he's dead. Now, some commentators kind of go back and forth. He was dead. He was dead. And God worked a miracle through the Apostle Paul. And this man was indeed raised from the dead. Now, he wasn't resurrected in the sense uh, that Jesus was or that we will be in the sense that he didn't get a glorified body, okay? But he was restored uh, to life, and presumably he lived out uh, a normal life. And uh, not even that great thing could interrupt the testimony to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told there in verse 11 uh, that they went back and they broke bread and they ate, and then he conversed with them. In other words, they, they talked more about the Lord Jesus Christ. He continued to encourage, to admonish, to correct all of these things because of, of Jesus. I've, to, I've told you one of the encouraging things for me is when I walk through this building after church on Sundays, there are people, spots of people, packs of people all around, and they're talking. They're, they're fellowshipping. They're sharing their lives with one another and typically sharing truth that informs how we live. And so uh, uh, they complete this time. They, they go all the way through the night at daybreak. I know some of you feel like we're going to go all night here, but we will not go all night here today. But they did uh, then, and upon uh, uh, completing that, they ended the service, and we're told then that they prepare to continue uh, their journey. Uh, they, uh, some of the details, it, it would be kind of some fun if we had pictures and all uh, to follow the travel log, and, and I don't have that, but it would be very uh, interested, interesting uh, to see uh, all of the uh, places that uh, they went on that journey, uh, noting there in verse 16 that Paul is going to bypass Ephesus, uh, whether he just didn't want to get embroiled again uh, in the affairs there or whatever. Uh, but one of, probably my favorite section of the book of Acts will come up when we get back to Acts. In this gathering with the elders, this final gathering where Paul has some words of admonishment and encouragement for them. And so we're gonna, this is kind of the beginning of the end of the third missionary journey. And really the, what will be the end, uh, as far as Luke is concerned, of the intentional missionary efforts of Paul because he's soon going to be arrested uh, in uh, Jerusalem. But we, we look back on the, the great evangelist, uh, church planter, the, uh, the pastor that shepherded and encouraged and he preached and he taught and he oversaw and he advised and he admonished and he encouraged. Based on what? Oh, it's, it's going to work out fine. We're going to get this thing going and it's going to be... No. On the power of the resurrected Christ, he encouraged, he ministered uh, in his name. During this time, he's dealing with all kind of problems in, in Corinth. If you'll remember that, doctrinal errors, moral sin, mutiny against him, the acceptance of false teachers, party fact, on and on it, it goes. Yet what? I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul would be satisfied with this. His life 
was like the settings of a beautiful diamond ring. That is, the, the point of a setting for a ring is not so, oh, that's a, boy, that's a great setting. Uh, those, I love those prongs that, that the diamond is glued to. I, I've never seen prongs that pretty. Uh-uh. The point is the diamond. And Paul would say this to us. Don't, don't reflect too much on the prongs. You contemplate the diamond. And that diamond is the Lord Jesus Christ. That diamond is the truth of a gospel that is powerful to save. It is a, the truth of a gospel that says, Come unto me, all of you that stayed up all night through the weekend. All of you, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Yes, I will give... There, the, I can't promise life is going to be better because of the gospel in, in the temporal sense. But there is only one place. There is only one source for rest. Everything else is restlessness. Everything else is restlessness. May we, may we see Christ. May we rejoice in Christ. May we rest in our great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it really is worthwhile to even burn yourself out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, uh, for the power of your gospel. We do indeed serve the God of all truth. We serve a resurrected Savior. We serve a Savior in whom there is hope. And we thank you for that. God, we thank you that we have the, the story of the Apostle Paul. It's a, it, it is a great testimony to the power of your gospel, to the truth of your gospel, to the effectiveness of your gospel as it's proclaimed even to those who are initially hostile but ultimately come to find the remedy for their restlessness by resting in you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.